DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's program, the whole feeling here in Germany is one of concern and uncertainty. There are already people who are saying that this could not only be a winter of discontent if you will, but that this could be a very difficult year for Germany as a whole. Strike action across Germany. We look at what this could mean in the run-up to regional elections in the east. Also on Inside Europe, justice delayed. A new film highlights the plight of hundreds of British sub-postmasters falsely accused of stealing from the post office. And change at the top. NATO is looking for a new secretary general, whilst Denmark has a new monarch. We'll be finding out more about both. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany, recording from home in Dusseldorf today. And there is a reason for that. Germany's train drivers union is engaged in a multi-day strike action. And the roads aren't a safe bet either, since convoys of tractors manned by angry farmers protesting cuts to fuel subsidies keep popping up and blocking the traffic. All in all, there's a feeling of malaise, frustration and quite literal gridlock. Time, I thought, to check back in with DW's political correspondent, Thomas Sparrow, in Berlin. Well, Kate, and my commute also has become a little bit more difficult, not only because of this uh, three-day nationwide strike by train drivers, but also because of the ongoing protests by farmers across the country that are basically upset by planned subsidy cuts that the government had announced. Specifically talking about this three-day nationwide strike, it is not the first of its kind, but it's part of a larger dispute over wages and conditions. And there's one statistic that actually very clearly describes the situation, because apparently 80% of long-distance train services will be cancelled. And that basically means that people across the country, also here in Berlin, are basically forced to make changes Uh, to their timetables and to their plans if they want to get to their destinations. And as you mentioned, the roads are not a safe bet at the moment either. And that is because all across the country, convoys of farmers have been blocking roads with their tractors. Now, I'd like, Thomas, to go into more detail about the exact nature and tone of these protests in a minute. But first, perhaps you could just set out for me what the issue is here for the farmers. Basically, what led to these protests now has to do with these subsidies that the government had originally announced they would cut. Um, but in the end, some of them were backtracked by the government, the government understanding that they sometime, somehow had to also work with the farmers together. But in the end, for many in the farmers union and many farmers, they do not think that's enough. And they still think that their situation is so difficult that they basically have to go to the streets with their tractors to, to protest. Now, the government understands that these protests are legitimate, that people have the right to do so, where there's a little bit of controversy, or in fact, a lot of controversy actually, is in the nature of some of the protests, because there's concern among German authorities that some of the protests could be hijacked by political forces, in particular by the far right. Gallows was shown in some of the protests in which politicians were to be basically symbolically hanged. 
Right. Okay. And I mean, this is significant. We've also had banned Nazi era insignia turning up at protests. Uh, We've had specific death threats against specific politicians. How representative is it of the movement as a whole, do you think? Is is it too early to say? What are the the farmers' unions uh, doing to distance themselves from this uh, far-right messaging? Well, first, there was also another issue, another event that happened actually a a few days ago, which has been key to also understand what's happening and why especially government officials are critical of of, uh, the way in which some of these protests have been happening. And that was the fact that Germany's vice chancellor, Robert Habeck, um, and his wife, who come from the northern part of Germany, they wanted to come back from their winter holidays. And they were actually held up for a very long time when they were trying to return from their holidays as a group of farmers, about 250, 300 farmers, if I'm not mistaken, blocked the port where their ferry was trying to dock at. And actually, police had to intervene with pepper spray. And this led to the German government basically saying that uh, these kinds of things shouldn't be the norm in Germany, shouldn't actually happen Right. And I think that that example is really significant, uh, Thomas, because uh, it's becoming increasingly clear that in the run up to that incident where an angry mob blocks Robert Habeck from disembarking from his ferry, what appeared to be a very spontaneous uh, group of of farmers amassing is actually complicated by the fact that it's now become clear that organised far-right channels were uh, sharing information about where he was going to disembark, that there was actually a level, uh, at least amongst some elements in that group, of um, coordination by by the far-right. But the optics, of course, are very much of a spontaneous civilian uprising. It's that combination and that sort of uncertainty that is potentially quite a challenge for politicians uh, at the moment. Absolutely. So the farmers' union did distance itself from what happened in in the northern part of the country. But you mentioned, I think, the key word, and that key word is uncertainty. And there is uncertainty here in Germany. You only have to look at some of the nationwide polls that have been published in recent days, in recent weeks, when Germans have been asked how they see their personal future and the future of the country. Now, their personal future, and we've seen that in the past, many Germans still see in a positive light, but the future of the country, especially the immediate future of the country, is seen with concern and uncertainty. Uh, That has to do with the fact that Germany is dealing with many, many simultaneous problems. Um, There's an economic situation which is not necessarily very positive, which is very important for Germany standing internationally. There's the impact of two wars affecting Germany directly or indirectly in certain in certain ways. There are protests in the streets. There's, and I also think this is particularly important, there was this ruling by Germany's highest court only a few months ago at the end of last year, which basically meant that the German government had to replan its budgets. And it's basically meant that the whole feeling here in Germany is one of concern and uncertainty. There are already people who are saying that this could not only be a winter of discontent, if you will, but that this could be a very difficult year for Germany as a whole. And one element that can play into that very difficult year for Germany is the fact that in the second part of the year, in September, there will be regional elections in the eastern part of the country. And in the three regions where there will be regional elections, guess what party is leading in the polls? The AFD, the alternative for Germany, which is basically tapping into all these uncertainties. So when we talk about these protests now, The AFD sees 
a clear chance to tap into people's fears, to tap into people's uncertainties. And that's why you're seeing these flags and why you're seeing basically these tries by the alternative for Germany. And by the way, not only by the alternative for Germany, other parties are also trying to use them as well to basically uh, move forward and present their, their goals leading to these very important regional elections. DW's political correspondent Thomas Sparrow there. If you'd like to find out more about Germany's rocky road ahead, I can really recommend Thomas's contribution to last week's 2024 Look Ahead episode or Survival Guide to 2024 as the YouTube edition is titled. You'll find it there or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, if you were in the UK this week, you'd know that there is one television programme that everyone is talking about. And no, I don't mean The Crown, but a docudrama with altogether more humble protagonists, which has helped bring attention to one of the biggest miscarriages of justice in European history. It all has to do with one of the UK's most respected brands the post office, the chain of shops where Brits go to post letters, pick up their pensions and catch up with friends. The people who run the branches, sub-postmasters, are often celebrated and loved in their communities. But we now know that hundreds of them were sent to prison or accused of stealing money when in fact they'd done nothing wrong. Innocent people have had their lives ruined, lost friends, were shamed by their communities and, in some tragic instances, even committed suicide. And it was all down to a faulty IT system. As Dan Ashby reports, it's become a national scandal. The computer system Post Office spent an arm and a leg on is faulty. No one else has ever reported any problems with Horizon. No one. You're responsible for the loss. I haven't got that money. And I don't know where it's gone. Forget life imitating art. This is the moment that a TV drama put a dynamite stick in a national scandal. That was a lie, actually. It's the story of how more than 500 innocent post office staff were either sent to prison or had their lives and finances ruined after being falsely accused of stealing from their employers. For years, a faulty IT system meant branch managers' accounts were wrong. But instead of looking into reported concerns, the post office blamed its staff and prosecuted them. I did have to use personal funds. I had to remortgage the house. When I had discrepancies, well, they kept my wages twice. Joe Hamilton was one of those who fell into debt, got a criminal conviction and was shamed in front of her community and family as she told a parliamentary committee two years ago. Parents helped out and then ultimately ended up in Winchester Crown Court. I had to plead guilty. We now know that countless marriages were destroyed and innocent people went bankrupt, with many dying before their names were even cleared. Professor Moorhead from Exeter University is a legal expert and has been selected to advise the government on compensation after looking at how this has impacted the victims. We've done research on the mental health impacts. They suffer extraordinary levels of um, anxiety, depression, showing symptoms like post-traumatic stress disorder, higher levels of PTSD, post-traumatic stress than uh, uh, similar samples in the army, believe it or not. So if you meet them, that you can see the pain written in their bodies sometimes. They have borne extraordinary... They've, they've been ostracised by their community. They've been spat on. Uh, and they've borne that with an extraordinary 
patience and decency. They really are quite exceptional people. The story has bubbled away for years, first exposed by a niche magazine. It later went national after being picked up by broadcasters and newspapers. That coverage led to 93 convictions being overturned and compensation payouts to more than 2,500 people. But many sub-postmasters haven't seen a penny due to high legal fees. It took the ITV drama in the last few weeks to really bring this to full public consciousness. Lord Arbuthnot is an MP who began trying to raise awareness 15 years ago. 2009, I first uh, met Joe Hamilton. And it's been going since then, and it is shocking uh, that it has taken so long. Uh, We've now had 60 people die or more, uh, and without full compensation, some of them with convictions still in place. And so so we need speed, and I, I think we're going to get it now. Less than half an hour after this interview... The British Prime Minister announced a new law that would ensure all victims were exonerated and would receive compensation. But Professor Moorhead says the scandal shows the system is not functioning. The courts, corporate governance, government and politics, it's all a bit broken and needs a good hard look. Most of all, the British public is left with a lingering sense of horror at what cherished heroes of the community have been put through. But if there is a shred of hope in all this mess, it is in the sub-postmaster's 20-year campaign for justice and truth. They have forced a company, a government and now a country to ask, how on earth could this have happened? Dan Ash, BTW in the UK. Now, normally at this point, I would remind you of our email address, insideeurope at dw.com, but in honour of postal staff everywhere, this time I'm going to tell you that if you want to drop us a line, then you can also always reach us at Inside Europe, care of DW, Kurt Schumacher Straße 3, 53113, Bonn, Germany. I'm Kate Laycock. You're listening to Inside Europe. It's all change at the top now as we bring you the stories of NATO's search for a new secretary general and Denmark's unexpected new monarch. Let's tackle NATO first, and that is very much the beat of Terry Schultz. Jens Stoltenberg, the stoic Norwegian who's led NATO through its biggest reconfiguration in history, will really leave the post this year after almost a decade on the job. His former spokesperson, Juana Lingescu, says... It's the right moment for multiple reasons. He really wants to go back to Norway. So um, it is time uh, for NATO uh, leaders uh, to find uh, a good candidate and to do it at the right time. Because the worst thing that could happen would be the Secretary General of NATO being a sort of leftover from late night negotiations over the EU table or getting caught up in a very messy United States elections. 
Stoltenberg was extended four times. Once, even after he was so ready to go, he'd already accepted another job as head of Norway's central bank. It's not exactly clear why NATO was evidently unable or unwilling to find a suitable replacement for Stoltenberg. But part of the reason it's not clear is because there's no official procedure for choosing a new chief. There's been an unofficial list of desired qualities, like experience as a head of state or government, from a country with robust defense spending, from a southern or eastern ally, and preferably, finally, a woman. Many names have come up and gone down. Currently, Estonian Prime Minister Kaja Kallis, Latvian Foreign Minister Christianis Karins, and outgoing Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte all want the job. Rutte has gradually emerged as the clear favorite, considered a safer choice with Moscow's war on Ukraine dominating the alliance agenda, something questioned by Christy Reich from the International Center for Defense and Security in Tallinn. There is the sense that uh, having somebody from the Baltic states uh, to, to be at the helm of NATO would be somehow counterproductive or not helpful. And it's difficult to see what exactly the problem is because the relations with Russia are frozen at this point in, in any case, and we are not talking about uh, the likelihood of starting to restore uh, the diplomatic relationship uh, anytime soon. But it's not only the relationship with Russia that allies are looking at, as we're reminded by Ian Lesser of the German Marshall Fund of the U.S. There is still the question of picking someone who could adapt to a variety of possible outcomes in Washington. And some of those outcomes uh, could be very challenging politically for Europe. Jens Stoltenberg earned the title of the Trump Whisperer because he was so successful at managing the then-U.S. president's disdain for NATO. And on one of Ruta's trips to the White House, Trump said they were friends. Although his re-election is only hypothetical, insiders say Trump is a huge factor in the choice for NATO chief. Even though negotiations all happen behind the scenes, Kaya Collis isn't pretending she hasn't noticed. Joking publicly at an event hosted by Politico about what used to be considered these requirements for a new NATO chief, all of which she and she alone fulfills. Yes, the next secretary general should be from a new member state, a new being 20 years in NATO, new member state. Um, It should definitely be from a country that has spent 2% of their GDP on defense. And it would be nice if it uh, would be a woman. So it's logical, it's Mark Rutte. Would you like to be considered? Yes. And while this choice is something that's been gossiped about for years, Juana Lingescu says it's still too early to predict how it will turn out. Terry Schultz, DW, Brussels. The first ever NATO Secretary General, by the way, was selected in 1952. The Danish monarchy, on the other hand, has been around for centuries, although, interestingly, it used to be elective and only became hereditary in the 17th century during the reign of Friedrich III. As of this Sunday, another Friedrich will be on the throne, Friedrich X. He's taking over after the shock announcement on New Year's Eve that his mother, Denmark's long-serving Queen Margarete II, wishes to step aside. From Copenhagen, Adrian Murray has more. A fond farewell to a much-loved monarch. Riding in a golden carriage through Copenhagen's snow-lined streets last week, Queen Margrethe made one of her final appearances as Denmark's head of state. And as a route she takes again this Sunday when she formally abdicates from the throne. On January 14, 2024, 
52 years after succeeding my beloved father, I will step down as the Queen of Denmark. I will pass the throne to my son, Crown Prince Frederick. The announcement made during her annual New Year's speech came as a huge surprise. She said major back surgery last February had prompted her decision. Margrethe is Europe's longest reigning monarch, and many Danes have known no other king or queen. There's been shock and sadness, but also an outpouring of support. Very surprised. And then uh, after surprise, then we said, oh, very good idea. She's old and is a little sick and very good idea. I also think that she's really good at representing Denmark and people come here to see the castle, to see where the royals live, put Denmark on the map. Will you be watching on Sunday? Of In course. the television. And we have been here for three days just to they are be ready to Sunday. Dressed in black and still mourning the death of her father, Frederick IX, Margrethe became Denmark's sovereign at a youthful 31. Over the decades, her popularity has bloomed and she's rarely made a misstep in the public eye. Jakob Steen Olsen is a royal expert and commentator at Danish newspaper Berlinske. The Danish Queen Margrethe has always modelled herself uh, on the British Queen Elizabeth, actually. It's more or less the story of the crown in many ways, putting your own inclinations, your own wishes aside in order to serve. She's also become popular because she's gradually opened up the monarchy. She's probably the most interviewed monarch in history, thus also showing sides of herself, becoming very human in front of us. Affectionately known as Daisy, she's a talented linguist with a passion for archaeology and the arts, who's worked on costume and set design for ballets, theatre productions, and most recently, a Netflix show called Erengard. In the heart of Copenhagen stand the dark stone walls of Christian Borg's palace, the site of Sunday's succession. Mastambo, head of the museum there, showed me around the throne hall, an oval-shaped room, richly decorated with gold wallpaper. This is also the hall with the balcony at the front of the palace, on which our Crown Prince Frederick this Sunday will step out and be announced king by our Prime Minister, Mette Frederiksen. And this is only the third time in a hundred years a Danish monarch is proclaimed from the balcony. This Sunday is emotional and very special to all Danes. It feels like a national symbol leaving the stage, but we look forward, all of us, to welcome the new king. Once known as a shy young man and party prince, Frederick later served in Denmark's special forces. The 55-year-old is a popular figure and a strong sportsman, but eyes will also be on Mary, the new queen. Australian-born, the former marketing executive is a fluent Danish speaker with a down-to-earth touch and an even higher approval rating than Frederick. Under their reign, a more modern monarchy is expected. Here's Jakobstein Olsen again. They're doing it in another way. Uh, they're much more accessible uh, and they've also redefined their roles by wanting to use their celebrity status to do good in this world. So they uh, have been very good at defining uh, different areas that are also important to people now, such as uh, the environment, ecology, the climate, women's rights, LGBT plus rights, children's uh, inclusion in society. Sunday marks a rare moment in history. Across Denmark and far beyond, scores will be glued to their screens as the next generation of royals forges a new future. Adrian Murray, DW, reporting from Copenhagen. And whilst we're on the subject of royalty... 
our Spotify poll is back. If you head over to the platform and click on this week's edition of the programme, you'll get to test your European royal watching credentials. Don't miss out. Now, with all due pomp and ceremony, I hereby proclaim that this is Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Coming up in the next half hour, espionage arrests. Turkey tries to avoid being dragged into Israel's war with Hamas. Tensions in the Balkans. Republika Zubska chooses a controversial date for its day of national celebration. If you're not an ethnic Serb in Bosnia, you view that day as the start of the campaign of forced displacement, illegal detainment and murder, which I think most people will remember uh, from the Bosnian conflict of, of the early to mid-1990s. Plus, lessons from Georgia, how to set up a government in exile. Also, open for business, Spain pins its hope on economic growth. That's all coming up. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. We begin this half hour with a spy story. Just after New Year, Turkey arrested dozens of people across the country, all suspected of being linked to Israel's Mossad intelligence service. The highly publicised arrests are seen as a warning to Israel to desist from any targeting of Palestinians living in Turkey. Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul. Earlier this month, dozens of homes were raided in a major operation against alleged spy rings of Israel's Mossad intelligence service. The raids follow President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's warning of serious consequences if Israel sought to hunt down members of Hamas in Turkey. Murat Aslam is a senior security analyst for the Foundation for Political, Economic and Social Research, an Ankara think tank. It's very clear from the threats of Israelis that Turkey is selected as a venue for attacks on Hamas. In this case, then Turkish intelligence at the very first instance, and in, by, the, by the words of President, warned Israeli intelligence in Ankara that there must be no act. But right after this warning, it was a political warning, intelligence organization identified, activated cells of Mossad in Turkey. Israel has not commented on the arrests, but Israeli military leaders and government ministers are vowing to track down those involved in Hamas's October the 7th attack on Israel, 
wherever they reside, as Israel's army chief Hezi Halavi made clear. We are inflicting severe damage on Hamas, damaging the leadership of Hamas, targeting the commanders, targeting the terrorists, destroying Hamas's infrastructure in Gaza. And we are also constantly ready for other areas. We know how to reach Hamas anywhere in the Middle East. Erdogan is frequently organizing rallies in support of Hamas, which he calls a liberation movement. Turkey is viewed as a likely location for Israel's hunt for those involved in the October 7th attack, claims Galia Lindenstrauss, an analyst with the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv. When we see the massacres of October 7th, how they occurred and how well they were planned, Obviously, there was a lot of assistance also from the outside and a lot of things that were coming uh, from outside of Gaza into Gaza. Uh, Some of this obviously uh, came through Turkey, not by the Turkish government, but by uh, the Turkish government or Turkish security authorities uh, not paying enough attention to what was happening. Turkey is, of course, not happy uh, when foreign countries try to undermine these activities in ways that it thinks harm its sovereignty. Uh, But as long as Turkey allows all this activity on its soil, uh, there are ramifications. It's not the first time Turkey's MIT intelligence agency has clashed with Israel's Mossad. But Galia Lindenstrauss says these two formidable intelligence services have also recently cooperated in foiling an Iranian plot against Israelis. We definitely did see good cooperation between uh, Mossad and, and Meat, and there was a foiling of uh, supposedly imminent attack against Israelis on Turkish soil in 2022. So these organizations also know to cooperate. I think they have great respect to each other. Last month, Turkish authorities arrested alleged Islamic State members accused of planning attacks on synagogues As the war in Gaza continues, security expert Murat Aslam says Ankara is determined to prevent the conflict from coming to Turkey. Turkey does not want to be a playground for the intelligence organizations. So that's why I think Turkish intelligence increased the activity to identify exactly who is involved in what activity. Turkey has witnessed terror attacks and assassinations in the past dealing a heavy blow to tourism and the wider economy. Observers say Ankara is determined that the Middle East war won't spill over onto the streets of Istanbul. Dorian Jones, DW, Istanbul. Tensions are also running high in the Balkans, where the ethno-nationalist president of Republika Zubska, Milorad Dodik, stoked division by declaring a national public holiday for January 9th. Bosnia's constitutional court, which in theory has jurisdiction over both the Federation of Bosnia-Herzegovina and Republika Zubska, ruled against the date, but Dodik remained defiant. Freedom is what we need. We don't need colonizers. We don't need tutors. This nation has never allowed itself to live enslaved. That's why even the celebration of the day of the Republic of Srpska cannot be outlawed. Those who anticipate there won't be a republic should see us today. 
So what is the significance of January 9th in the region and why are emotions running so high? Those are questions that I put to our Balkans correspondent, Guy Delaunay. Well, the date is divisive for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's it's the, an Orthodox Saints' Day, St. Stephen, and it's been found discriminatory by the Constitutional Court on those grounds that you can't have a day, a national holiday, that's only a celebration um, for one of Bosnia's ethnic groups. And to remind people, in Bosnia, the three main ethnic groups are Serbs, Croats and Bosniak Muslims. Uh, the Serbs are mainly Orthodox Christian, the Croats mostly Catholic, and uh, the Bosniaks mostly Muslims. And that's one one of the problems. But the main problem really is that the 9th of January 1992 was the day on which secessionists declared a breakaway Serb Republic. And if you're not an ethnic Serb in Bosnia, you view that day as the start of the campaign of forced displacement, illegal detainment and murder, which I think most people will remember uh, from the Bosnian conflict of, of, of the early to mid-1990s. And we've actually heard from relatives of the victims of the Srebrenica massacre, uh, the mothers of Srebrenica. They want that date to be declared a day of mourning rather than a day of celebration, as the authorities in Republika Srpska have it. Uh, and it's it's worth saying, we, we, we're talking about you know what makes something a national celebration. And Bosnia's got this very odd situation where the Dayton Peace Agreement, which brought the war to an end in 1995, effectively split the country into two. On one half, you've got Republika Srpska, which is where most of the ethnic Serbs live, but also Croats and Bosniaks and other ethnic groups live there. And then you've also got the Federation, which is mostly where Croats and Bosniak Muslims live. But, you know, again, these things are not exclusive. And that's why the Constitutional Court has ruled Republika Srpska Day on 9th of January to be unconstitutional. Now, the president of Republika Srpska, uh, Milara Dodik uh, Guy, he had been threatening with succession. Um, those threats have been rode back on. But with all the tensions in the air at the moment, just how viable is the current status quo as established by those Dayton Accords in 1995? As the years go by, Dayton looks more and more problematic. You've, in essence, got these two quite strong regional governments with a very weak national government in the middle, which doesn't even have a lot of essential ministries. For example, there is no national ministry of health. It's just left to the regions or the entities, as they're known in, in Bosnia. It, and everybody knows that the things have got to change. I mean, Bosnia has been told that it can start EU accession negotiations in March if it makes progress on, on, on certain reforms. But you know, one of these reforms is going to have to be sorting itself out so it's not frozen in time with the state and peace agreement, because everybody sees that it's it's not tenable. Because what that situation allows for is the domination of ethno-nationalist politicians. People like Milorad Dodik, and he has equivalents in the ethnic Croat and Bosniak Muslim uh, political circles, they will stir up ethnic divisions, they will stir up tensions and stoke fears deliberately so that they seem like the best bet for people of that particular ethnic group, so that people will elect them out of fear rather than any good that they might do them. And what the ethno-nationalist politicians have done very successfully over the past 29 years is, in essence, to divide, conquer, um, govern and profit. 
And this is why you see tens of thousands of people leaving Bosnia and Herzegovina every year. They recognise that the system is completely broken and they don't see a future for themselves or their children in it. Perhaps you could tell me a bit more, uh, Guy, about uh, Milorad Dodik, the president of Republic Srpska, who's at the centre of this current controversy. Well, Milorad Dodik just keeps turning up like a bad penny when we talk about what's wrong in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And his threats of secession are nothing new. He's been doing this for years. I mean, the man's been one of the leading figures in Republic Srpska politics for two decades now, whether that's as prime minister or as president of Republika Srpska, and he's also served um, a term as the Serb representative on Bosnia's three-person national presidency. And, you know, just the fact that I've had to utter that sentence uh, tells you how complicated and, and ridiculous in many ways the system of government in Bosnia and Herzegovina is. So Milorad Dodik has been around, like I say, for a couple of decades. At first, he was seen by the Western powers who have an interest in in Bosnia's peace, stability and development as a good bet. As it's turned out, he's been probably the worst of the ethno-nationalist politicians. And everything that he does is fundamentally for the benefit of Milorad Dodik and for his patronage network. Um, So these secessionist threats he keeps coming out with they're not really for the benefit of anybody in Republic of Srpska. They're not for the benefit of Bosnian Serbs. They're all done as a tactical manoeuvre to keep himself and his party in power in Republic of Srpska. It's, it's that cynical. Maybe we could uh, zoom out a little bit, uh, Guy, because I'd be very interested to hear how you see this ongoing situation fitting into wider power struggles going on within Europe and, and beyond. Perhaps you could just sort of widen the net for me a little bit. Well, certainly Western diplomats are very concerned about Bosnia because it's vulnerable to manipulation because it's it's not got a strong national government, because you have these ethno-nationalist politicians. And in the case of Milorad Dodik, he is very visibly and likes to play up his uh, his friendship with uh, with Vladimir Putin, Russia's president. So, so people, of course, are concerned that Putin can use Dodik as a proxy to stir up problems in Bosnia and, by implication, the Western Balkans. And then you have the situation between Dodik and Serbia. Now, we've heard Dodik this week talking about how he and the people of Republika Srpska view themselves as Serbian and feel themselves to be integrated with Serbia rather than with Bosnia. Well, this is a concern as well for, for everybody looking in. Is there going to be some sort of uh, move towards reviving this idea of greater Serbia which we had in the 1990s, which was at the root of the conflict that we had, that, that, you know, what you would in essence have was the collapse of Yugoslavia, but the growth of Serbia to include all the parts of what was Yugoslavia, where ethnic Serbs are in the majority. And stirring this up is is bad news for the stability of the region, because then if you've got a greater Serbia, you then uh, bring into idea the, into play the idea of greater Albania. It, it's it's very destabilizing to have a figure like Milorad Dodik in power, who's playing up his connection with, uh, with with Russia, who's playing up all this secessionist talk, and it's not good for the entire region to have these sort of uncertainties and instabilities on an ongoing basis. And as I've said, that's why you see people voting with their feet. 
it's not just in Bosnia that you see that happening. You're seeing it happening in Serbia. You're seeing it happening in Kosovo. You're seeing it happening in North Macedonia. People leave because it's very hard to see a future in a region which isn't just not is not moving forward towards membership of the European Union, and it's not looking good in terms of stability. Our Balkans correspondent Guy Delaunay there. The Balkans, of course, are not the only region experiencing an exodus of citizens at the moment. After Russia invaded Ukraine, many people fled the occupied areas for parts of the country still controlled by Kyiv. Prominent amongst them were deposed politicians and lawmakers, some of whom are now attempting to govern in exile. So, how might regional branches of Ukrainian government continue to assist areas that Russia is trying to annex? The situation in Georgia, in the South Caucasus, might provide clues. Politicians who fled wars in Georgia's breakaway regions, which are also occupied by Russia, set up a government in exile that has functioned for decades. From the Georgian capital, Tbilisi, Levi Bridges reports on the complications of governing from afar. Back in the early 90s, Georgia fought a war with the separatist region of Abkhazia. It's one of many parts of the country where Georgians and other ethnic groups live side by side. The Abkhazian people wanted to separate from Georgia after the Soviet Union fell, and Russia supported them with military aid. Roughly 250,000 ethnic Georgians fled the region. Many took refuge in abandoned buildings all over Georgia. 30 years later, a lot of them are still living there. In an old Soviet dormitory in Tbilisi, Irina Kotova shows me around the building where she arrived. There weren't even any windows or doors here when we showed up, Kotova says, leading me through a dark hallway. This building is bleak, but inside Kotova's apartment... She opens the door and I see a brand new apartment with soft lighting and linoleum floors. We renovated this whole apartment ourselves over the years. The government of Abkhazia didn't help us at all, Kotwa says. The primary task of Abkhazia's government in exile is to help displaced people like Kotwa. Some have gotten decent housing, but the government has never come up with the funds to rehouse everyone. Many still live in dilapidated buildings from the Soviet era. The government also finds ways to help people inside Abkhazia, but that's even more complicated. After the war, Abkhazia declared itself an independent country with its own government. Moscow supports Abkhazia's government financially, and Russian soldiers control checkpoints into the region. Many Georgians consider Abkhazia occupied by Russia. At a cafe in Tbilisi, I meet Ketavan Bakaradzia, Abhazia's former minister of health. As part of her old job, she helped displaced people access health care, as well as those living inside Abhazia. Because Abhazia is still part of Georgia, and we don't recognize their independence, so we serve them like our citizens. Abhazia's government rejects assistance from Georgia. Bakaradzia was only allowed to visit Abhazia during the pandemic, when they were desperate for help. The system of healthcare is in terrible situation. They have no modern equipment, specialists. Bakaradze managed to ship medical supplies into Abhazia, and she regularly collaborated with doctors there to evacuate sick patients to Georgia, where they received proper medical care. 
It was very hard to evacuate patient who is unconscious, who has trauma. Despite these successes, lots of Georgians from Abhazia don't support the government in exile. Inside the Abhazian Assembly, an advocacy group in Tbilisi, Malhaz Patraya invites me to coffee. He's frustrated because Abhazia's government in exile doesn't hold elections, unlike the rest of Georgia. The same politicians have been in power for 30 years. He says most are in their 70s or 80s. They don't do anything, Patraya says. He wants some new blood. I took some of these concerns to Abhazia's Supreme Council, similar to a regional parliament. Today, the government in exile meets in a slightly shabby old office building in Tbilisi. Inside, I ask Jamal Gamaharia, the chairman of the council, what he thinks about critics who want him to step down. Gamahari says we can't hold new elections because so many of our voters are inside Abhazia, which Russia controls. So it's impossible to hold a fair election. He says if anyone is responsible for this situation, it's the international community for not coming down hard enough on Russia for occupying Abhazia. I ask him if he thinks there's any way the government isn't responding to the people they represent. <laughs> he laughs and says, we need to return to Abhazia, obviously. Back in Arena Kotwa's apartment, inside the old Soviet dormitory, she flips through a book and shows me pictures of dead Georgians killed in Abhazia around the time she fled the war. What? Kotowa tells me Russian soldiers committed these kinds of atrocities. She says if the world held Russia accountable for what they did in Abhazia long ago, then there wouldn't be a war in Ukraine. That's something that the government in exile and their constituents all agree on. Levi Bridges, DW, Tbilisi, Georgia. Just a quick reminder at this point that if you want to re-listen to or share that or any of the other stories that we featured this week, then our podcast is available on all the usual platforms. And that now includes DW's new podcast channel on YouTube. Just type DW Podcasts into your YouTube search bar. You're listening to Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Now, how do you say, it's the economy, stupid, in Spanish? 
Es la economía estupido, I'm guessing. Anyway, that quip, which originated, of course, with a Clinton strategist, has served many a politician ever since. If you can put money into the pockets of voters and make the economy strong, the logic goes, they may forgive you almost anything. Towards the end of last year in Spain, Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez won an acrimonious election to remain in charge with his PSOE party. But the country is deeply divided, so no surprise then that Sánchez wants to focus on growing the economy in his second term in charge. From Madrid, Ashish Sharma reports. You can lose the election, but be the government. A don Pedro Sánchez Pérez Castejón como presidente del gobierno. Uphold the constitution, but with pro-independence parties. Why, you can even bring back self-exiled leaders who face criminal charges and tempt them with parliament instead of prison. Pedro Sánchez has done all that and now plans to heal Spain's political rift with the soothing balms of a successful economy. I know a place that will break you into a thousand pieces. Stay away from One of the key levers for this is tourism. Last year, visitors to Spain poured in over 155 billion euros into the economy. This sector is important for revenues generated, but also for jobs created. Stay away from Lorca and Picasso. Don't ask about Lola. But in spite of everything... Sun, sea and sand are Spain's classic appealing gifts. But in recent years, national as well as regional governments have been working hard to also improve urban and sustainable tourism. Don't say I didn't warn you. Be careful of the Andalusian crush. Hector Coronel is the Director of Tourism at the Madrid City Council. The Spanish capital has seen such an increase in overseas visitors that in 2023 it was the second most visited city in Europe after Paris. We are attracting a new type of visitors and also the spending is uh, higher than uh, we had in the past. ADR, the average uh, daily rate or room rate, is increasing also thanks to the new luxury hotels. And we need to expand now all these um, initiatives and, and experiences to other places in Madrid. How is the government helping you develop to bring about the results where we see the, the economy of tourism being so successful in Spain in general? The central government is changing a little bit uh, in terms of how we promote internationally, uh, how we promote the main pillars of promotion, which is uh, history, heritage, gastronomy, culture, traditions in, in general. Now, and, and we are full of everything in every corner of, of Spain. We are supported by the uh, Spain Tourism Office worldwide. Our main focus is long-haul markets, so we are very aligned with the strategies of to Spain uh, in uh, North America, in Latin America, Middle East, and uh, now Asia. It's a very health and, and, uh, and good relationship uh, for the good of Spain and for the good of the Madrid region, you know, as a region and, and, and as a city. An impulse. An electrical force that drives us to do what we feel. After Germany, Spain is the second biggest producer of vehicles in Europe. Companies like Seat are thriving, thanks largely to their successful Cupra model. And all this when the automotive industry is changing to electrification. But while car companies are coping well, the supply industry that feeds it with vehicle parts has found it harder. Impulse of a new generation, Cupra born, full electric. Uh, Jose Portilla, CEO 
of Cernauto. Cernauto is the Spanish National Association of Automotive Suppliers. The sector is um, conforming in Spain of approximately 1,000 companies. We represent 10% of the GDP of, of the whole Spanish economy. You're a big player in that sense, but it's clear that there have been some problems. C- can you highlight some of the issues that you've been having? Besides all the negative effects of the pandemic, we had the problem with the semiconductors, the lack of semiconductors. No? So um, also the industry, it was, it was hard for the industry to, to start up again. Then we, ha- we have these, these uh, because of the war in, in Ukraine and other uh, reasons, uh, energy prices going uh, up. Not to mention the prices for aluminium or steel, which are very uh, critical for some of the, the producers. Many of the companies in the supply chain have not been able to pass these uh, surplus costs to the car maker. A good number of the small and medium-sized companies uh, within Cernauto have suffered from this situation. And now we are living in, uh, with a lot of uncertainty. Uh, the electrical vehicle has a very low penetration in Spain comp- compared to other uh, competitors like Germany or uh, France or even Portugal. In Spain, we've got a lack of in, uh, charging infrastructure, putting uh, users or uh, customers in doubt. Still, it's a, it's a quite expensive uh, vehicle. Um, we are not um, such a rich country as uh, France or, or, or Germany. Um, uh, the average income is much more reduced. So buying an electrical uh, car in the range of 30, 35, 40,000 is not affordable at this stage for the majority of Spaniards. The budget plan for 2024 by the Spanish government aims to address some of these issues. Tackling high levels of unemployment is also on the agenda, as are plans to develop new industries, such as renewable energy. This could provide thousands of jobs and bring in millions of euros in investment. But much will also depend on how European economies grow overall and whether another energy crisis or rise in inflation will impact the growth of the economy. Ashish Sharma, DW, Madrid. It's a gamble, but if 2023 taught us anything, it is that Spain's Pedro Sanchez has nerves of steel. Let's see how it goes. For now, though, we've reached the end of our show. Our feedback address is insideeurope at dw.com. A big thank you to everyone who reached out to us with comments and suggestions over the holidays and also to anyone who left us comments and ratings via the various podcast apps. It was all very much appreciated. We'll be back next week. This programme was produced by Helen Sini with help from me, Kate Laycock, and sound engineer, Ziad Abu Sleiman. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Bonn, Germany. 